0: You know perfectly well what is the matter with you, Winston. You've known it for years, though you fought against the knowledge. You were mentally deranged. You suffer from a defective memory. You've never tried to cure yourself of it because you did not choose to. It was a small effort of will which you were not ready to make. <laughs>
1: great establishment tranquilizing term now that's used to sort of put the closure on discussions when when skullduggery comes up is oh you're just a conspiracy theorist everyone hears it everyone's learned how to say it it takes two seconds to say that's the end of the discussion conspiracy theorists are a sort of Democrat they're the volunteers who kick in when the official story just can't be believed And it's very much to the credit of people like Tony Summers, they're prepared to spend time winnowing wheat from chaff, but it's not to be despised. When you know that the official story is false, as the Warren Commission is, and as Warren admitted in private, he'd been asked to keep public opinion reassured. It's up to those who think, that democracy still counts to say all right we will we'll, we will think anything well,
0: is possible vital than love I don't know. somehow you will fail something will defeat you life will defeat you we control life at all levels we create human nature men are infinitely malleable or perhaps you return to your old idea that the proletarians will arise put it out of your mind They're helpless animals. Humanity is the party. I don't care. In the end, they'll beat you. Sooner or later, they'll tear you to pieces.
2: to episode 8 of Life and Life Army. And this is Conspiracy Theory, a Powerful Phrase. So what we're going to be doing today is reading an essay that I wrote a number of years ago now. But I think the central message of it and a lot of the examples of it and the concepts still hold. I'll get to that in a second, but the clips that you just heard there, the one in the middle was Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, talking about the phrase Conspiracy Theory and how it's used to shut down debate. And that's really what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm not going to be actually going through conspiracy theories and picking apart evidence of 9-11 and JFK and Princess Diana and Dr. David Kelly and all the other questionable things that have happened (laughs) through the years. You know, there's plenty of people who do that better than me and plenty of researchers. What I'm looking at today is, as I said, the phrase and how, as Mr. Hitchens said, it shuts down debate. And we're seeing this more and more. One of the things uh, I think I said to James Corbett last time that I have to thank COVID for is that it's absolutely stopped me posting on social media trying to change anybody's opinions and point out things because it just becomes an incredibly depressing exercise in the end. I still post little things, thought-provoking things, or I think they're thought-provoking anyway. And some people respond, but I never respond back if somebody calls me a conspiracy there, it's just an absolute waste of time. But uh, I was interested in that clip because it's very, very rare in the media you actually hear anyone say that, that some people just don't believe the mainstream version and they do their own research and they conclude, sometimes after a lot of research, sometimes not a lot, admittedly, that conspiracies do happen and there are ulterior motives and people conspire... But Again, it's not really about that because the phrases come to mean something else. You know, I'm a language teacher, I can tell you that words and phrases start with one meaning, but they get continually changed. You know, language is extremely fluid, as I've said before. The other clips there at the beginning and the end were Richard Burton as O'Brien and John Hurt as Winston in the film version of 1984, which came out in 1984. If you've never read, 1984, or seen the film, or it's a very good audio book actually as well. I would obviously urge you that's a seminal text. Was it fiction or an instruction manual? <laughs> you can decide. The other key one, of course, is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, and it's fascinating to look at the contrast between those two and these two different types of control. On that subject, I'm just going to read something that uh, I found online. And I'm going to put this in the show notes, and I really would urge you to read this. It'll only take you a couple of minutes. But it's a direct comparison of Huxley's Brave New World vision and Orwell's 1984 vision, how they control society. So, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who would want to read one. I mentioned to James Corbett, and he'd read the book Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, He talks about how we changed from being a book culture to a TV culture, and attention spans got shortened. And obviously that is happening even more now. You know, the internet, I love it in many ways. It's the reason I'm able to do this. It's a tool that can be used for good or ill. But no doubt that it is shortening attention spans at an alarming rate. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information... Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egotism. And that was written in the 30s, not the text I'm reading, (laughs) the book, I mean. Yeah, the passivity thing is an important thing, you know, just mindless television. Bill Hicks used to talk about this all the time, and George Carlin, you got, you don't have much choice of political leaders. I mean, look at the last one, we had Biden and Trump, two white guys in their 60s or 70s. You know, all the other candidates fell by the wayside and we got left with that choice. But, you know, you've got 36 flavours of ice cream and you've got 200 channels of horse shit, as I think Hicks used to say. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Again, you know, it's sort of a mixture of the two, I think, is happening. James Corbett is on two strikes, the last I heard from... YouTube for COVID misinformation, quote unquote. But then there's so much irrelevant information, and uh, you can just see we are drowning in it. The life is being squeezed out of us as we plunge into the depths of contrasting information and irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy porgy and the centrifugal bumple puppy I don't know what those mean exactly but <laughs> the trivial culture thing is clear James and I were talking um, in the last episode about our experiences in Asia and how Japanese and Thai culture both have this childish nature to them we also said lots of positive things about them it wasn't about saying that we're better and they're worse but there's an infantilization which again has absolutely been happening you know I've seen hard-nosed businessmen click on the stupidest YouTube videos and just laugh out loud and find it really funny. In fact, the last time I worked in an office, we actually caught the big manager who was going around, throwing his weight around and coming across as this big serious businessman. We actually, he left his computer unoccupied and we saw that he was just watching some absolute rubbish. Anyway, as Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, and that was in the 50s, I think that was a book that came out and he was reflecting on his vision and Orwell's vision. The civil libertarians and rationalists who were ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, people are controlled by inflicting pleasure. And they got a graphic of Big Brother there. Of course, Big Brother brilliant example of something very, very important The Big Brother concept in 1984 gets reduced to a reality show that actually started off not too bad. I watched the first couple of seasons, I think, and then just devolved like so many things into just, you know, a mass of triggering and and deliberately just planting people that they knew were going to have arguments. Anyway, in short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. It says, All Words from Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business by Neil Postman. Once again, big recommendation of that book. Okay, without further ado, let's get on to this essay. So like I say, I'll start reading and leave out the bits that are pretty much out of date now, but then tell you about the important parts. So, two friends, who we'll call James and Bill, are having a conversation They've been friends for a while and tend to agree on most things in terms of their general world view. However, James has recently been finding lots of information, a large part of which is in the public record, but didn't seem to appear on the news or in the newspaper, that seems to contradict the view of the world that they've both always believed was the real one. James Hey Bill, did you know that on 9-11 there was a third tower, called WTC-7, which wasn't hit by any planes, but which collapsed at free speed about seven hours after the planes hit the other towers? And did you know that the collapse of the two main towers, WTC 1 and 2, was totally inconsistent with any previous collapse of buildings, and that Osama bin Laden was never officially wanted for that crime, and that the hole in the Pentagon was too small for the plane that was supposed to have gone through it? I never knew all this, but it's pretty interesting, isn't it? James is an open-minded person who's never really looked for this kind of information before, and stumbled across it via a colleague at work. He was a little embarrassed and kept it to himself while he did more research on this and other topics. He's never been an extremist of any kind He is a level-headed and rather cautious person who tends to check facts before believing anything fully. He recently found and read Andy Thomas's book The Truth Agenda, and found it a very reasonable book that simply presented evidence that a great many things that we've always believed – may in fact be at least partly false. The official story of 9-11 itself seems to have up to 50 anomalies that may not mean a great deal in isolation, but put together seem to present a lot to ponder. James has suddenly started to wonder how everyone on TV news seemed to know that it was Osama bin Laden who did it almost immediately. And when was the official investigation? It started a year after the event and seemed to only happen because of pressure from a group of ladies nicknamed the Jersey Girls, who all lost loved ones in the attack. And James has found quotes from members of the 9-11 Commission who appeared to say that the investigation was set up to fail. And didn't President Bush and Vice President Cheney only agree to see the Commission together and off the record? Why, if their story was so obviously true? James has also found out that Bin Laden may have worked for the CIA in the 1980s, and that his family were major investors in an oil company that the Bush family owned, called Arbusto. Not only that, but George H.W. Bush, the president from 1988 to 1992, met with Osama bin Laden's brother on the morning of September 11th, 2001. And members of bin Laden's family were safely flown out of the US while commercial planes were grounded after the attack that one of their family was supposedly responsible for. It's true that some of the family claimed to have disowned Osama a while back, but even so, this is a pretty big revelation that was revealed fairly soon after the attacks themselves. In the three months or so that James has been aware of this alternative information, he has experienced periods of anger and despair before deciding to accept it and devote time to seeing whether there may be more that he was previously totally unaware of. So quite a lot there. I mean, this was written uh, in, I think I put it together in 2013 and then posted it originally in 2014. Now I want to just say off the bat, I have not been researching the world much since about 2014. I started to find it so difficult to get any of the truth. And, you know, I don't have the tenacity that someone like James Corbett has. I mean, he, as he said in in our talk, he's been lucky enough to be able to do this full time, you know, as well as having a family as he has. He can devote his working day, let's call it, to single-mindedly working on the Corbett Report and investigating the world. So... I just wholeheartedly recommend his work, basically. Regarding 9 11, I think, unfortunately, you know, it's disappearing. It's 20, 20 years now. And, and of course, in September, there'll be a big thing about the 20 year anniversary. And people will say, never forget, even though they probably generally don't give it a second thought, other than on anniversaries. I still think it's worth looking into that if you haven't before. A documentary I would. Definitely recommend 9 11 Press for Truth. And the Jersey Girls, as I mentioned in this paragraph, are in that documentary. And it's talking about how the government were not really interested in investigating this. And as Christopher Hitchens said in the clip you heard at the beginning, the Warren Commission, which investigated the JFK assassination, essentially Hitchens was saying that was set up to fail. And one of the co chairs of the 9 11 Commission said exactly the same thing. Anyway, all I'm going to say is, you know, have a look at nine eleven. James doesn't have to wait long for Bill's response, which appears to be automatic, as if he didn't even need time to process the information he was being given. Ah, oh, that's just conspiracy theory, said with rolling eyes. No, I can send you the links if you want. There are published articles that confirm a lot of this information. Some of it has never been denied. Bill, why would I waste my time? And why would you? These people are crazy. James, well, how about this? One day before September 11th, 2001, Donald Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, announced a war on bureaucracy in a Department of Defense article which stated that the Pentagon couldn't account for $2.3 trillion, the same amount as the entire annual federal budget for that year. And the Budget Analyst Office, which was working on trying to find this money, was one of the departments hit by the plane which apparently hit the Pentagon. James decides not to tell his friend that he has also discovered that this plane was supposedly flown by Hani Handjur, of whom more needs to be said. Three weeks earlier, Handjur had attempted to rent a Cessna, a small single-engine plane. He was ordered to take a chaperone test flight before rental was approved. He had failed miserably, and in the instructor's words, it was like he had hardly ever driven a car. He could not fly at all. This same Hanjour, who was of below average height and build, supposedly fought his way into the cockpit of Flight seventy seven or nine eleven and wrestled control of the plane from a six foot four former marine combat fighter pilot, Charles Burlingame, and his co pilot. He then took control of the bewildering array of gadgets and devices of a Boeing seven five seven instrument panel and managed to quickly interpret his heading, ground track, altitude and airspeed, seemingly without any help from ground control or air traffic controllers he then turned the plane around and set course for Washington DC. He successfully entered the most restricted airspace in the world without eliciting a single military intercept and executed an incredibly precise diving turn at a rate of 360 degrees per minute while descending at 3,500 feet per minute to level off at ground level, a stunt that would press the limits of even the most experienced aviation test pilot. Even more bizarrely, this manoeuvre was performed in order to avoid hitting the east wing of the Pentagon where all the top military brass were stationed, instead hit the West Wing, which was under renovation scheduled for completion on September 12th, 2001. Bill, you should get out more, mate. Never thought my friend would become a conspiracy theorist. Bill's tone is slightly sneering, very unlike him, as if he has had some kind of allergic reaction to what his friend has said. He usually considers things he hears in general conversation, but on this occasion seems to not need to do so. James knows that if he actually asked Bill why he thought it was Osama bin Laden who'd planned the 9-11 attacks, other than the fact that, I saw it on the TV so it must be true, his friend would have no answer and an awkward silence would ensue. Being a nice guy, James declines to do this. He could have also picked his friend up on his comment about getting out more, implying that it is geeky and uncool to do research and spend time alone engrossed in something. Presumably, this comment could have been made to Albert Einstein and other scientists who have made discoveries that have revolutionized our world by spending long hours inside, laboring to an unhealthy degree in order to complete a task. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to comment on. But all I'm really going to say is that consider the idea of this allergic reaction. You know, I've had this before. You know, friends who are very reasonable and very open minded, something triggers in them where they just want to say, oh, no, conspiracies. You know, they start laughing generally. Sometimes I get angry. Because I I don't really spend a lot of time on this anymore. I keep abreast of the bare facts of what's happening in the news. But I'm much more interested in patterns of news and overall concepts and really history as well. You know, again, there's there's this thing where people believe that they have to follow the latest news as quickly as possible and post about it. And, you know, I've been there. As I always say, whenever I do these things, I'm no different. I'm nothing special. I've just... Found through curiosity and following the work of some very, very interesting and rational people that, you know, I'm aware of it. I, I liken it to thinking we're all alcoholics, but some people are aware they're alcoholics, which Alcoholics Anonymous will tell you is half the battle. You know, admitting you're being duped, as we said with Austin Moore in episode six, we're not very good at that generally. You know, we want to believe that we're very savvy to the world and that no one can get to us, etc. So, you have to be a bit humble, first of all. And this thing, yeah, it, comedy programs, which I, I don't really bother watching anymore much. You know, I think the mainstream comedians in England, there's obviously some good ones. There's always some good ones, but you know, these panel shows I and mean, they—they think they're edgy, but they're just peddling these very limited ideas. You know, and oh, spending long hours in a darkened room. As I said, you know, how did Einstein <laughs> and other people? You know, they didn't just do things casually. They They did, you know, what's called deep work. You know, they spent long hours, painful hours, I'm sure, sometimes, focusing on things. Anyway, I'll continue. And there ends the conversation. Bill seems unmoved by what his friend has said, and the phrases conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist have been enough to totally disregard clear evidence, of which there is plenty more. James muses that the terms left and right serve a similar purpose in political debates, and that the recent presidential debates didn't seem to address the US's monumental military spending, or their dubious support of Israel, unconditional support I would say, or really address anything at all other than familiar arguments about tax rates, the economy, gay rights and abortion. James has also read of the existence of the Commission on Presidential Debates, jointly controlled by the Republicans and Democrats, which lays out precisely what can and can't be brought up in said debates, and in 2012 was found to have secretly colluded with the Obama and Romney campaigns by informing them of the debate topics in advance. It seems to James that important questions are never really asked or pursued particularly hard. Mainstream reporting never quite gets to the heart of the matter, and is best described by Dan Carlin in his podcast Common Sense as, Like going to a rock concert given by a famous guitarist where the music sounds like a five-year-old child banging away on the instrument, and the guitarist never plays the song we were expecting to hear, but the review the next day simply talks about how masterfully the artist took the stage, and how confidently they held the instrument and plucked the strings, and how they made a wonderful one-on-one connection with the audience. James remembers reading in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland about the rabbit hole, and it seems to be almost bottomless. What's interesting about James and Bill's conversation is that even if James had continued to introduce further reasonable arguments about facts perhaps another 100 it's fairly likely that Bill like the average person would have used the killer phrases he used before and the conversation would again have bizarrely ground to an immediate halt so yeah I reference the presidential debates you know it doesn't really matter whether it's Obama and Romney in 2012 or Obama and McCain in 2008 it's really the same thing you know the recent ones uh, I mean I couldn't hack more than about five minutes of them, to be honest, but uh, I did read some of the reports. And, um, yeah, they're never going to talk about the military spending, defence, as they call it. The defence minister was actually, in England at least, used to be called the minister for war. So they were a bit more honest then, or naive, let's say. And, you know, Israel, it's never going to be brought up. Those things are unconditional. And as G. Edward Griffin said in the Quigley formula, talk that we referenced in the last episode and I really would urge you to watch that. You know, Democrats and Republicans there are some differences but a lot of it is just paying lip service lots of hot air arguments but really there's not a huge difference, you know. If I'm wrong tell me. But you know that's even said in the mainstream in England, you know, that there's not really a huge difference between the two parties I think in America, Republican still has that connotation that you're sort of old and out of touch and a little bit heartless. And about the left and right, Democrat-Republican thing, notice on the TV, whenever they're having a debate, anyone challenges the official version, the sort of mainstream mouthpiece. will talk about left and right. Oh, it's a left position, that's a right position, blah, blah, blah. Also, whenever you see a politician interview on TV, and I'm sure this is the true in Britain and America... In America, it'll always be, it'll it'll have a D or an R, Democrat, Republican. In Britain, Labour, Conservative, they always have to put that after the person's name. And, you know, as soon as you see Republican, they know that, you know, roughly 50% of the people are automatically going to be triggered without even realising it probably in their mind. It's going to be, oh, he's a Republican, you know. That's the team I don't like. I'm a Coke drinker. I don't drink Pepsi. I throw my brain with McDonald's rather than Burger King. You know, that's what it's come. It's a duopoly, you know. The Commission on Presidential Debates is controlled by the two parties. they got it sewn up, you know. As G.E.B.A. Griffin and others have said, it's like pro-wrestling. You know, they pretend to beat the shit out of each other, but at the end they get together and have a drink. Anyway, on to the next part. So, author Michael Parenti, speaking at Berkeley, California, on the 30th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, talks of the similar phrase, conspiracy buff, being used to describe the numerous, reputable and serious scholars and investigators who presented evidence that refutes the official version of that momentous event in Dallas in 1963. The word buff seems to imply a quirky person who makes a hobby of looking at these events, and is a fan. Parenti notes the absence of the phrase holocaust buff for those studying that horrific event. The difference, of course, is that the JFK evidence brings into question the validity and credibility of the state, i.e. the government, and shows its apparent similarity to a gangster operation with scores of people mysteriously found dead from vehicular crashes and suicides. Andy Thomas has a good video called The Conspiracy History of the World, and he plays a little game with the audience where he tells them to guess how many mysterious deaths they've been connected with certain events. It's quite harrowing. What must be understood is that phrases using the word conspiracy bring the majority of people into a different state of mind. A sudden switch has happened to Bill in the conversation with James. They may get a slight smile on their face as even serious academic noam chomsky does when talking about such matters on a side note chomsky is a curious case being a person who has enlightened masses of people to the american government's responsibility for millions of deaths in their overseas adventures since it became an empire yet seeming to be totally uninterested in any alternative thought in relation to jfk 911 or indeed the establishment of the federal reserve which was a massively significant event and a very secretive one well-documented in the book The Creature from Jekyll Island. What maddens most people who suddenly awake to certain realities in this world is that the conspiracy theorist Buff, Nutjob, Wacko, Tinfoil Hat, Tag runs a whole gamut from conspiracies that are now believed by the majority of those polled, such as JFK, to those believed by almost nobody, Elvis Alive, Bigfoot, Flat Earth, Loch Ness Monster, Shapeshifting, Reptilians. You really have to marvel at a phrase like this, and its power to stop us thinking and allow us to submit to what the experts tell us is the truth. What is sad is that yet again we curtail each other using language given to us, while the power players sit on the sidelines with a proverbial cigar in mouth. Say what you like about David Icke, but something he said, and not saying this is something he thought of, but research is often about taking what's been said before, and uh, putting your own, uh, say spin, but not spin in a bad way, just, Presenting it in your own way, let's say. And he said, You know, human beings are worse than sheep. We don't need a sheepdog to keep each other in line. And it, it's really true, you know. I mean, I, I said, I haven't worked in offices for years, but I'm sure it hasn't changed too much, you know. You, if you're in that confined space and you're working with people every day, if you start to talk about any of this stuff, you're immediately at risk of either being subtly or less subtly ostracized or more likely people will laugh at you. And, you know, when you work in an office, people get a persona or are given a persona. So when they show a new person around the office, they'll say, oh, this is this, this is this. Oh, you know, that's Anthony. Oh, he's a bit of a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> whatever. I never really had that because I, I wasn't, at that time, really alive or awake to any of this. So I was probably still considered quirky and weird. But, you know, the limits that were imposed you know, unknowingly again a lot of the time, on mainstream ideas and mainstream thought. You know, the limits are so big that it doesn't take much to be considered weird. You know, if you spend any amount of time researching things, you'll probably come across as a weirdo. Anyway, to really understand the uncanny power of this type of language and the phrase we're discussing in particular, we need to find its origin in terms of its modern usage. Barry Zwicker, an award-winning Canadian journalist, documentary producer, political activist and media critic brackets, or alternatively just a conspiracy theorist, (laughs) if you wish to disregard his 60 years media experience with one lazy phrase, has investigated the phrase which he considers to have been weaponized, and is a practised student of language itself and its use and power. He makes the point that we tend to use language without really thinking about it or acknowledging its great power. To quote Marshall McLuhan, We don't know who invented water, but it certainly wasn't a fish. We swim around, surrounded by and using language constantly, but its original creation is not of our making. One only needs to think of how cruelly children taunt each other with phrases which cut deep, usually highlighting small differences between them which suddenly get magnified with a few well-chosen words. Zwicker points out that words often have automatic image associations that can agitate the emotional parts of the brain. The word conspiracy may well elicit a fear response, which very often triggers a defensive reaction of a smile or a little chuckle or a mental image of a group huddling together to plot something sinister. Its use leads to well-worn images of tinfoil hats and the scandalously pejorative phrase the grassy knoll society, referring to those who believe that that's where the shots that killed JFK came from. Pointing out that between 50 and 100 people testified that they heard shots coming from that area, including a man called James Tague who was hit by a fragment of a shot from the knoll, has now with the passage of time become a cliché. It's quite possible that many people actually do in private find some of the alternative viewpoints at least in part valid, but the fear of being labelled crazy is one of the deeper ones in the human psyche. Painting others as crazy and paranoid may validate our own sanity, a quality well valued in Western society. Of course a government education and life of exposure to mainstream media, TV and films teaches people to be suspicious of, laugh at and ultimately disregard anything below the surface and not clearly apparent despite the fact that around 90% of our brain function happens beneath the conscious state. Hence, the instinct for extremely intelligent people to suddenly stop reasoning and enact an instant prejudice could be essentially based, like many actions, on deep-seated fear. Of course, another barrier is a difficulty for adults to believe that they have been either duped, conditioned, brainwashed or even influenced. Other phrases such as secret CIA plot and government lies are also written off nowadays by many purely through their continual use over the years. You might want to wonder why these phrases are used so much. Could it be because of the CIA's numerous secret plotting and the government's now default position of lying? Yeah, I was talking to somebody about Operation Mockingbird, which is a real operation, which is the idea of um, CIA agents being planted in the media and trying to steer the conversation in a certain way. In the 70s, everything was Watergate, while... Something like COINTELPRO, another provable conspiracy, wasn't really given any coverage. Anyway, I was trying talking to my friend about this, and he started laughing, oh, Operation Mockingbird. Because they have been reduced, in a way, through comedy films and things. They're given these names, and, and unfortunately they have been reduced in people's minds, a lot of people's minds, to cliches. Anyway, let's continue. The aforementioned CIA is where the origin of the pejorative use of the phrases conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist" is to be found. In a nutshell, by the late 1960s there were already a reasonable number of people who were raising doubts about the Warren Commission's conclusions about John F. Kennedy's murder, enough in fact to warrant a television debate on it. The agency's propaganda arm came up with the idea of instructing its media assets, such as book reviewers and publishers, to start using the phrases we're discussing in order to marginalise JFK sceptics. CIA document 1035-960, titled Concerning Criticism of the Warren Report, and dated April 1st, 1967, alludes to this and the particular tactics used to stop dissent and, quote, a trend of opinion which is a matter of concern to the US government, including our organisation. A 1967 poll had found that 46% of the US population doubted that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone in Kennedy's murder, a number which incidentally has increased substantially in the intervening years. And the document expressed concern that, quote, efforts to impugn the rectitude and wisdom of the Warren Commission members cast doubt on the whole leadership of American society. This document was categorised under PSYOPs, Psychological Operations, and its deliberate intention is clear now on the CIA I'm currently reading the book The Phoenix Program by Douglas Valentine and I'm definitely going to try and get him on the show at some point in the future once I've finished that book but the CIA were all over Vietnam you know unless Mr. Valentine has concocted all of this and made up all these names and made up all these events which I highly doubt particularly since he's put all his sources so the CIA is a big one you know again it's you know unfortunately again it's become a cliche the CIA did it you know but uh, they did a lot of things. Uh, worth researching that. Continual repetition by influential people gradually brought conspiracy theorists into the general lexicon, and a powerful weaponized phrase was born. I think actually Barry Swicker said that had actually been invented, if you want to call it that, in the 1920s. So I think it was a weaponization of it that happened in the 60s. Swicker points out the sad irony that the public's use of this phrase as a thought-stopper is a remarkably effective protector of the conspirators themselves. There is a link here to the phrase Crime Stop, as used in Chapter 17 of 1984 by George Orwell, and defined as The faculty of stopping short as though by instinct at the threshold of any dangerous thought, including the power of not grasping analogies, failing to perceive logical errors, failing to understand the simplest of arguments if they don't adhere to the programme norm, and of being bored or repelled by any train of thought which could potentially lead in a subversive direction. Crime Stop is Protective Stupidity Stupidity in this case is meant not as a criticism of a person's natural faculties, but rather as a self-dumbing down of one's thoughts. And what we said earlier about, you know, the Huxley and Orwell graphic, it's not that people are stupid. I don't think people are stupid. But I've talked before about this video that's online of um, Chomsky talking to um, someone, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's saying, you know, I just want to have a beer and watch rubbish on TV. And Chomsky's like, no, you've been conditioned. The whole propaganda industry. But this dumbing down—it's I mean, very, very hard to deny if you really look at it. So we're being made stupid, and our attention spans are being shortened, and that's pretty deliberate, in my opinion. But um, you know, with all of this, just—I would urge you to research it yourself. So here I wrote about Operation Mockingbird, which I mentioned earlier. Following on from the 1967 document, Operation Mockingbird was a CIA plan to influence media reporting by placing operatives inside the more powerful news institutions. It is one of myriad examples of how the news we receive, which ultimately comes from literally a handful of large corporations, can never be unfiltered. It must be remembered that broadcasters are dependent on government licenses and newspapers on advertising subsidies, so the idea that what we receive or what we are fed can be guaranteed to be exactly what has happened is naive, to say the least. As an example of the advertising subsidies issue, in 2003, Michael Meacher who was a Labour MP, a former member of the Blair administration who resigned in protest against the illegal invasion of Iraq, wrote an article in the London Guardian called The War on Terrorism is Bogus, containing facts that would be popularly considered to be subversive. In quotes. It is reckoned that the newspaper lost up to a million pounds in advertising revenue due to publishing said article, and an advertising boycott was threatened, the thing that newspapers and TV producers most fear. So the stakes are high. For more officially recognised and admitted conspiratorial behaviour, it might be worth investigating Operation Northwards and the Gulf of Tonkin incident before letting the defensive instinct take over and be a thought stopper. Keep that phrase in your mind, thought stopper. That's what this phrase is. Another good example of the power of certain phrases when used in the media, in this case the phenomenon of nicknames, to change opinions and create certain images is the case of Joey Brown, former Governor of California, who ran against Bill Clinton for the US presidency in the early 90s. Brown had been revolutionary, pushing hard for labour rights for farm workers to protect them from agri-industrial poisons, funding large wind energy projects along the length of California and introducing satellite conference calls in that state in order to save the time and money needed for state legislators to fly in every time they wanted to meet. The corporate interests he threatened needed to divorce this man of the people from the people he served so well. What did they do? They called him Governor Moonbeam, in reference to the satellite phone system he pioneered. The name caught on, and along with some media character assassination, it was enough to make him a figure of fun and divert attention away from his intentions to actually implement the policies that are supposedly part of the quote American dream. For the record, Brown's conference call idea is now standard practice. Nicknames are particularly effective because of the association with school days and the clear and lasting memories they invoke. Ron Paul, who is essentially a libertarian but who ran as a Republican in the 2012 presidential race in order to give himself some chance of joining the debates, was clearly subject to a media blackout and was dubbed Dr No, a reference to his former profession as a physician and his non-interventionist stance regarding America's foreign policy. The word chicken is regularly applied to politicians opposing wars, which are usually illegal and happen due to the President's special powers in such situations. Even the word truth has been branded with a negative connotation following the rise of the 9-11 truth movement. As one documentary about the true face of the media put it, Orwell Rolls in His Grave. And I'd recommend you watch that documentary, Orwell Rolls in His Grave. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, so some of this is a little bit out of date, admittedly, but um, nicknames, easy to shut down. Again, the common theme, shutting down debate and reducing it to childishness. Carrying on, the normative literal meaning of the phrase conspiracy theory varies from dictionary to dictionary, but generally relates to covert actions by a group of people, often but not always in positions of power. Careful examination of our own general beliefs will lead to the conclusion that we are all, in fact, conspiracy theorists, particularly if the apparent theory has been rubber-stamped by the mainstream media, who we all say we don't believe, but which remains most people's source for a general version of events. Italy. I'm speculating a bit there. There are quite a lot of alternative media now, but I would still argue that some of it is officially sanctioned or never takes these things too far. Strays away from conspiracy theories, of course. If you had suggested to the majority of people before June 2013 that the government was monitoring the communications of normal citizens, as well as being involved in all manner of other clandestine Orwellian surveillance programmes, you would probably have been immediately tagged with the label. Edward Snowden's revelations, started in that month, were a good example and not the first by any means of a category known as conspiracy theories that turned out to be true, of which there will be more later. Considering that Osama bin Laden was not officially wanted for the crime of 9-11 before his apparent murder by Navy SEALs, an absurd, ever-changing narrative that should have raised alarm bells to anyone inclined to think about it, then the general belief that he and his 19 martyrs carried it out is in itself a conspiracy theory but one now officially true and destined to grace Wikipedia and the question cards of trivial pursuit forever. What about detectives who often posit theories about conspiracies in the course of their investigations? And what about the general belief held by most that advertisers get together to devise techniques of persuasion to coerce consumers into buying things they usually don't need using money they don't have in the form of credit? Is it a stretch of the imagination to think that a group of married men might mutually decide to take off their wedding rings before a night out in order to make women think that they are still single? Anyone buying or selling a house would surely believe that the pictures of the house are deliberately taken to give an illusion of extra size and brightness, as are those of food on the outside window of a shop. The salesman who cold calls on the phone or at the door is viewed as a pest, because in our mind we think that we're going to be subject to sales tactics standard in the industry and devised by more than one person relating to products we wouldn't voluntarily be interested in. What about the additives proved to be added to cigarettes to make them more addictive, as shown in the film The Insider? Most of us don't know what exactly happens with political lobbies, but we could reasonably theorise that some kind of covert talk ensues in order to achieve political aims that don't always extol the virtues of truth and justice. Each of the above is a conspiracy theory until one actually sees it with one's own eyes. So I think what I was getting at there was we place a lot of faith, you know, and um, by the way, people have a go at religion and say, you know, (laughs) why do you believe in a God that you can't see? And I've got huge problems with organized religion, but not religious faith per se. So people who say, oh, you don't believe in something that you can't see. Right, well, you know, we don't see what happens in boardrooms and we don't see how news is created, even though there's lots of good documentaries nowadays. So there's no excuse, if you're interested in it, not to at least investigate it. You know, generally we do believe that there's deception in the world and corruption. I would say most adults believe in that, but then we stop short in a certain way. And you know, people like Chomsky, as I said earlier, who in many ways a great admirer of you know, he stops short, it doesn't want to go any further. You know, continuing. Being from the West, I observe clearly that Western governments, for example those of the US and the UK, I have no problem believing that rival governments such as those of Russia and China are capable of false flag terrorism and communist plots, the fear of which were major components in keeping the Cold War going. But the idea of Western powers doing the same is just conspiracy theory. This is an example of what critics of the US establishment called American exceptionalism, and no doubt the same bias applies on the other side of the world. The manipulation of language in the terms terrorist and freedom fighter, for example, to describe essentially the same act, is another clear indication of this bias and the subjective nature of language. Conspiracies exist in our society every day, socially, commercially and politically. Considering the twin facts that humans are social and tribal beings, and that the system is based on the necessity for competition, it would be almost impossible for this not to be the case. Courtrooms around the world are filled every day by individuals, corporations and governments accusing one another of various conspiracies, such as conspiracy to commit fraud, to embezzle, to deceive or to murder. Can you imagine if lawyers could stop an argument or get a case dismissed instantly by simply calling their opponent a conspiracy theorist? Some conspiracy theories are true and some are false, and each should be judged on its own merits. It is oftentimes essential, such as in wars or in big business, to theorise about what the enemy may or may not be doing in order to anticipate and counter their moves. In some cases this can be used to bring down clearly damaging regimes, such as the Nazis." Pamphlets informing citizens of the corrupt and harmful nature of their rulers and warning of possible dangers, which were in essence conspiracy theories, were used in the French and American revolutions to positive effect. Paranoia, even when appearing to be justified, is another word with powerful connotations when used pejoratively. When ruling institutions are found to be engaging in behaviour unhealthy for those that are apparently existing to serve, conspiracy theories will abound. Even if some are exaggerated or false, they still serve a general purpose of informing the ordinary person, the 99%, if you will, I would say 99.9% really, of the general nature of their rulers and the need for some kind of awareness and general reform. Playing the numbers game, when you find on the 9-11 Truth website the article the 40 main reasons to doubt the official version of 9-11 and see the research has been done and the books written, the probability that all of the anomalies presented can be easily explained away seems highly unlikely and the list of arguable points is useful as a reference point for stumbling upon the elusive truth. The reality, of course, is that the majority are not even deemed worthy of consideration, which is where the magic phrase comes in very handy as a thought stopper. I won't mention that phrase again. (laughs) I think that's been fairly well established. So it's not the literal phrase itself, but its modern connotation, and of course the host of subconscious and unconscious factors that trigger a very specific response of denial. We've seen how our character Bill reacted to James's apparent conspiracy theory, which of course was in part established conspiracy fact, but more dangerous are those who would do serious research, but all in the name of debunking anything that hints at a kind of conspiracy. One of these people is a gentleman called Brian Dunning, who runs the weekly podcast Skeptoid. No doubt Dunning is right about a lot of his scepticism regarding pseudoscience. His narrowly defined aversion to conspiracy theories was well exposed on the Joe Rogan podcast. Rogan later made a very salient point that a lot of instant and smug dismissals happen on mainstream television, where short segments constantly interrupted by commercials are the norm, so a lot of deep and impressive real-life conspiracy research can be ridiculed without being properly examined. Rogan's podcasts, in contrast, usually clock in around the three-hour mark, so there's plenty of time for proper scrutiny. Rogan, I personally felt, could have pushed Dunning more and really flattened his short-sightedness But like our character James, he chose not to. Joe made the point that if you believe that 9-11 happened, you believe in conspiracies. He confronted Dunning with apparent conspiracy theories that turned out to be true, at which point Dunning claimed that they weren't conspiracy theories then, they were facts. Rogan also made the point that the government has been proven to lie pretty much constantly, so believing in the standard version of events means believing in a proven liar. Dunning's response was a vague differentiation between a standard and official narrative, distancing himself from appearing to follow the government line while acknowledging that the version we are given by the mainstream media very often comes from government sources. What he decides is a conspiracy theory is basically anything which is hard to prove and implicates Western powers. Rogan's polite probing eventually uncovered the fact that Dunning had once been a believer in non-mainstream theories but had found one or more to be false and so had completely gone the opposite way to instant dismissal of all of them. Skepticism is often very healthy, but it's not the same as dismissal. Aren't the military-industrial complex worthy of dunning scepticism? Times journalist David Aronovitz is another of these debunkers who immediately goes on the attack in debates and starts using the magic phrase instantly. His anger and righteous indignation are quite convincing up to a point, but under examination, when confronted, for example, with the testimony of William Rodriguez the janitor at the World Trade Centre who was originally given multiple medals for heroism for helping to evacuate survivors, but was later ostracised for his claims that he heard explosions going off in the North Tower before Flight 11 hit. He had nothing to offer but that Rodriguez is wrong. Aronowitz's book Voodoo Mysteries, along with Among the Truthers, written by Canadian journalist Jonathan Kay, both start with the premise of a group of eccentric misfits who all seem to be allied together in their wacky ideas, which in Kay's charitable estimation sometimes have a grain of truth. So yeah, this debunking the conspiracy theorist thing, it it always starts with a premise which they seek to prove rather than actually looking the evidence. It's doing things inside out, if that makes any sense. It's like um, with news. Instead of examining events and creating a news story, now we have 24-hour news. So you have to fill the news with events, which means that you're going to not necessarily make things up but you're going to make a lot of things which are not really that important if you think of it think of sport, talk sport which now has another branch, talk radio in England which deals with the political side talk sport now is 24 hours a day sport most of it football and the importance given to football the way people talk about it so seriously and this serious analysis it really boggles the mind It was really interesting last year when football matches started to take place behind closed doors, and you still got coverage of them, but there was no crowd there. And, you know, I watched a little bit of it. I don't watch barely any football anymore, but some of the TV coverage had crowd noise, but you had the option of turning it off. If you turned off the crowd noise, what you got was the FA Cup final, the big final, just looking like a training session, and what you actually got was what football actually is, which is a load of blokes kicking a bag of wind around and getting very excited about it. And the, it was funny to hear the commentator still commentating, not as if the crowd were there, but with the same excitement. and going, Oh, it's a cross on the right. Oh, and it's a header. But it, it sounded ridiculous because it sounded like he was just commentating on a training session. It was so interesting to see football reduced to what it actually is. Now we get to quite an interesting part, which was um, yeah, a conference about conspiracy theories. Another interesting example of a conspiracy debunker and their narrow focus is Karen Douglas of the University of Kent who produced a paper called The Hidden Impact of Conspiracy Theories and took part in the 2011 CFI UK Conspiracy Theories Conference which analysed in minutiae the psychology regarding the phenomenon of conspiracy theorists and their wacky ideas. It's worth watching her presentation at this conference along with that of Ian Crane in Rebuttal to see who seemed more interested in presenting evidence rather than disseminating explanations designed to discourage and play down the validity of actual investigation. Douglas poses the question, why do conspiracy theories endure when there is no factual support for them and they fly in the face of established facts? She then talks of conspiracy theories and how they powerfully influence people's attitudes without them knowing it. She goes on to say that outwardly people may deny the extent to which they've been influenced, but they tend to endorse the new information and then pass it on to others. It's worth noting that Karen Douglas prefaced her talk by saying, I'm not going to focus at all on whether or not these theories are true, but rather why people tend to believe things that are not the accepted or mainstream view. Two minutes later she tellingly reiterates, I'm not really concerned about the truth or otherwise. This begs the question, Why not look at some evidence? Because if you find good evidence, that might answer your question without you having to go any further. She comes up with various plausible reasons why people's lack of control and power is responsible for them needing to fill a hole in their lives with conspiracy theories. Hardly a new idea. What she's actually looking at is why people don't follow the mainstream view. Could it be that they found that the government and mainstream media, either separately or in collusion, are proven liars and have looked into this, and like our character James, found a seemingly endless rabbit hole of things that the mainstream ignores completely, or at least fails to highlight? She then shows a slide of two pictures of Paul McCartney, clearly the same person, as an example of a conspiracy theory that seems obviously false, namely the rumour spread by some disc jockeys in America in 1969 that McCartney had died in 1966 and been replaced by a double. And what, pray tell, has that theory, believed by nobody I personally know, got to do with JFK 9-11 or the death of weapons inspector David Kelly, which are backed by strong evidence and or anomalies well worthy of independent investigation? Why are they all being lumped together in the same category? Filmmaker Rob Ager suggests that Karen Douglas's work actually shows the hidden power of personal opinion in creating a conclusion not based on actual objective research of the theory in question. Upon reading Douglas's words, I would say that there is an uncanny accuracy to them if you substitute conspiracy theory for the hidden power of an average upbringing based on compulsory education, including a fairly mainstream view of history and indoctrination by media and general societal norms. Not as catchy, perhaps, but a decent explanation for the curious lack of questioning by the populace and their general assumption that the powers that be are looking out for them and that the corporate media is basically telling them the truth. Does Karen Douglas know that her work although perhaps objective within its scope, is missing a huge point, and it's the hidden power of hers and society's fears that certain things might turn out to be true, driving the default position of her and most others. So, yeah, there's so much to unpack there, I'm not going to say too much about it, because otherwise this episode will go for (laughs) many hours. But um, I think the telling point here, just read this again. She talks of the hidden impact of conspiracy theories and how they powerfully influence people's attitudes without them knowing it. So not thinking that mainstream media, which is corporate media, corporations are mandated to put profits above anything else, powerfully influence people's attitudes without them knowing it. Outwardly, people may deny the extent to which they've been influenced, but they tend to endorse the new information and pass it on to others. I mean, that is just perfect for what people do who absorb mainstream media. They deny the extent to which they've been influenced. Yeah. Oh, the papers wouldn't lie to me, you know. And they tend to endorse the new information and pass it on to others. You know, offices, every day. What's everyone been talking about the last couple of weeks? Megan, Piers Morgan. Yeah, really important, isn't it? Terribly important. I was talking to someone the other day and saying, can you imagine what laws are being enacted while there's been one news story in the last year? Okay, there's a few more recently, but Certainly for up to a year, COVID was pretty much the only story with a little bit of Brexit. And another idea that annoys me is the idea that conspiracy theorists are lazy. It's lazy to go for the simple version. But that's what I would argue we're brought up to do. Scan the news for five or ten minutes every day and say, right, I'm informed. I know what's happening in the world. At the Conspiracy Theories Conference... Ian R. Crane took the stage with a presentation entitled Conspiracy Theory vs. Deep Geopolitics. I'm going to link to that, by the way, which saliently commented on the preceding speakers who had engaged in general academic research, obsessed with psychologizing the phenomenon without once looking at the research angle. After running through a few pieces of evidence that most may not have seen and discussing the work of some credible researchers, he then brought on Tony Farrell, 17 year principal intelligence analyst for Yorkshire Police who was dismissed after questioning 9-11 and 7-7. After being advised to proceed directly to occupational health to have his sanity tested, Farrell was dismissed from his job and quickly ostracised from the establishment he'd served for nearly two decades. Crane represented Farrell, and at the tribunal stated that nobody, not an analyst, a manager, nor a member of the disciplinary panel, spent any time investigating the evidence that underpins Mr Farrell's changed position on the strategic threat associated with the terror domain. There's absolutely no sign that anyone considered any evidence before concluding that Mr. Farrell's views were outlandish. Now, Tony Farrell is someone who apparently has been discredited. Honestly, I have not looked into it, I don't know one way or another. But I think the same principle or the same uh, observation could be made that if you do start to question, you know, 7 7, you know, if you read Tom Secker's book, for example. You know, there are loads and loads of question marks, you know. No one's really going to believe you, you know. 9-11 alternative theories are out there, you know, and people have watched loose change and other documentaries, but I don't think the 7-7 questioning movement ever really took off, despite some good work. But the idea, yeah, of, of not really investigating it. I think this is the point. It doesn't get investigated. It just mostly gets tagged with a, a label of uh, being crazy, which, as we said earlier, is one of the biggest fears of humans to be labelled as insane. As Mr Farrell was being fired, the Chief Financial Officer, who was the dismissing officer, said to him, you might be right, but your views are incompatible with the views of the South Yorkshire Police. Karen Douglas talked of the attraction of conspiracy theories and how they fill a hole in people's lives. Crane's counter is to ask the question of what attracted Farrell to do what he did. Was it loss of a 17-year career, loss of salary, loss of index-linked pension... Desire to be labelled insane, desire to be ostracised by colleagues, or to become unemployable, perhaps. And again, whether Farrell himself is genuine or not. Again, there have been whistleblowers who are risking a lot. As I said, you know, people have mortgages, they have families, they have careers. Unless you can break free of that and become a freelancer, or particularly people who are retired, who are suddenly out the system and have paid for their house and everything, you know, there's a lot to lose. So why would people? speak out if it was all rubbish, it was just conspiracy theories. Something to ponder. Crane further points out research regarding the left and right brain. It's hard to argue that mainstream government education is predominantly left-brained, which has a very limiting effect on thought. Betty Edwards in her book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain writes that, slight paraphrasing, the dominant left verbal hemisphere only wants enough information to categorise and recognise things. It learns to take a quick look and say, this is a cat, this is a dog, this is an umbrella, or this is a conspiracy theory, without needing to analyse the information closely. Because the brain is overloaded with incoming information, one of its functions, it seems, is to screen out a large proportion of incoming perceptions. David Pederson's book, Camera on Analysis, states that it would appear that the left logical hemisphere can be persuaded or manipulating into believing a certain belief or behaviour was logically correct. Pedersen was looking at this in respect to jobs such as working in a concentration camp, where it appears possible to carry out any form of atrocity under the cloak of it being justifiable once this manipulation of logic has happened. And as a side note, let me tell you that humans will do anything if they can justify it to themselves. That's something I've learned. And, you know, if someone has a quirk of the brain, let's call it, so psychopathy, sociopathy, for example, then it becomes much easier to justify it, or they may even just totally disregard the negative effects of their actions. In our current financial system of effective work slavery, feeding and clothing one's family is often enough justification, Fueled by misplaced ideals which are themselves fostered by subtle long-term brainwashing and indoctrination from the day of birth. And James Corbett agreed with me in episode 7 that propaganda really starts from your entry into the world. This would explain the institutional denial of South Yorkshire police to look at Farrell's position with any kind of critical eye. Ask yourself if an academic, for example, relying on funding from the government or other institutions, is really likely to publish anything going against the established way of thinking. The book, Left in the Dark by Graham Ginn, Gin and Tony Wright, states that The dominance of the least functional and most damaged side of our brain, the left side, is created as a bizarre problem namely that we don't realise we are stuck in a distorted and limited version of reality and that the dominant left side of our brain does all it can to maintain the illusion. These comments on the left brain seem to explain why conspiracy theories are considered in isolation as random events to be explained away or simply disregarded rather than as pieces of much larger puzzle or dots to be connected. Clinical psychologists point to trauma leading to extreme denial. And what we should perhaps analyse is why anyone believes anything without looking into it for themselves, whether mainstream or alternative information. Intellectual laziness is the crime, and the bowing to peer pressure that apparently leads some to blindly believe conspiracy theories equally works the other way, which is exactly what I was saying earlier. And in fact, when I did the talk about um, being a cynic or being an optimist, I was criticising blind optimism. I think it's good to be optimistic, I'll reiterate that, you know, positive energy. But sometimes you have to be cynical or sceptical. You know, we can argue about the exact meanings of those two words. But uh, questioning, question everything. You know, There's another mantra if you want one. So we're left with mainstream and alternative camps, each with their own conspiracy theories that they're holding on to for dear life. Conspiracy researchers such as Alex Jones and David Icke make money from the interest of alternative views, but so do conspiracy debunkers. Ian Crane sees himself, as do I, in an often overlooked third camp of curious but active observer, one whose opinion evolves over time and with new information coming to light all the time. The conclusion to be drawn is that the serial conspiracy debunker, just like the hardcore conspiracy believer at the other extreme, is not really thinking for themselves but acting, as we all do, on a predetermined instinct based on a myriad of personal factors maybe conspiracy theorist is actually a backhanded compliment implying a person who questions things and thinks just as communist at the height of the cold war seemed to become an extremely broad phrase applicable to anyone around the american establishment with progressive thoughts and ideas so quick caveat i'm not downplaying at all the horrors of soviet and chinese communism and other communist regimes but that that was really about totalitarianism for me whether it's communist or fascist, whether you call yourself right-wing or left-wing. That was about extreme control and about uh, persecuting and often killing dissenters. What I'm talking about is the way that it's been broadened out. So communist, terrorist, these words. Terrorists exist, of course, but it's so broad that it, all kinds of people are lumped in and a lot of it is people who are questioning things. So, continuing. How is the subject of conspiracy theories handled by the government, academia and the media? Aside from the general mainstream dismissal of cranks in all these areas, I'm going to include two examples, the first by establishment-friendly American academics and the second by the British Broadcasting Corporation. In 2008, Cass Sunstein, soon to become an administrator in President Obama's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and fellow legal scholar Adrian Vermeule, co-wrote a paper called Conspiracy Theories, which focused on the damaging effects of these theories to the US government. They recognise these theories as no trivial matter posing real risk to the government's anti-terrorism policies, whatever they may be. Among the responses suggested to combat this damaging scourge on society were infiltration of chat rooms and social networking sites, a conspiracy theory ban, attacks on conspiracy theorising, and attempts to counteract the theories either by the government themselves or by, quote, credible parties. As has been stated in this essay, The phrase conspiracy theory has seemingly been enough to make actual debunking or confrontation of the evidence itself curiously unnecessary by both the government and the public at large. The BBC's Conspiracy Files series, which started airing programmes in 2006 and continued up to 2011, supposedly tackled some of the more famous cases which have been subject to questions around the official versions of events. To their credit, these programmes did interview some prominent, credible opponents of official narratives – But the series as a whole was clearly working from the position that conspiracy theories are largely or totally false and so need to be debunked rather than allowing evidence to lead them to a conclusion. That was what I was talking about earlier, rather than the evidence leading to the conclusion, come up with the conclusion first and fit the evidence to it. You've got news to cover, find some events and fit them to a news format. As the public tend to share this view through years of conditioning, these programmes were an effective reinforcement of a prevailing view. Closer inspection, however, reveals a familiar short-sightedness and hand of convenient pieces of evidence along with familiar techniques of viewer direction or misdirection. Coming in with the assumption that alternative explanations were an insult to survivors and the families of victims and the habit of showing conspiracy theorists in darkened rooms while those with establishment views were shot in wide-open spaces. Yeah, this is a very old trick. Look for it in documentaries, yeah. Establishment view, someone will be outside might be a sunny day, but it'll all be bright. And then the conspiracy, there'll be some crackly music. And then someone in a dark room, which is what I was talking about earlier, that it's uncool and weird to spend time researching, you know. It doesn't have to be in a dark room. It could be in a light room, you know. (laughs) But that association is made and is pretty effective. The painful ignorance of most viewers of these kind of techniques ensure that the programme's agenda went unquestioned while maddening those who have awoken – don't necessarily like that phrase anymore, but you know what I mean – to how the will of truth is being pulled over all of our eyes on a daily basis. The accompanying conspiracy road trip programmes and mainstream reporting and reviews of them confirmed in this author's eyes the utter dishonesty on show here. As mentioned earlier, this treatment of conspiracy theories is aimed at those with the worldview that follows that governments are generally well-meaning and well-motivated – even with all the clear reported daily evidence. So this is not the case. Now, I'm just going to interject there. What we've seen recently in uh, America is a president who many people find absolutely disgusting, namely Donald Trump. So people who generally would dismiss conspiracy theories are very sceptical of him. But what they're missing is that there's an apparatus that is in place, whether it's Trump or Obama, whether it's a, a very popular or unpopular president, whether with Conservatives or Liberals, they will say, yeah, the President lies. I'd like to talk to someone who's who's a serious full-time researcher about Trump and whether he's a plant, or was a plant, put there to be just so egregious and disgusting. So everyone's attention was on that for four years or more. I think people's scepticism in what the President says, depending on who it is, I think that has increased. But I still think the real conspiracy, what's happening behind the curtain, is... I don't know, dismissed. So, going back to the article, though, so the convincing presentation of this view leads to a kind of mass cognitive dissonance in those absorbing the information. It seems easier to believe the majority view than deal with the stress of possible ridicule and exclusion by peers and the aforementioned labeling as crazy. The Occam's razor principle says that of two equal explanations, the simpler one is the one to follow. This is still the majority worldview, in my opinion, and logic says that an explanation handed to the public is simpler than a complex case with lots of grey areas that requires independent investigation. But in enough time, I believe it won't be. And as ever, there is a reliance by the establishment on enough time passing for anyone to care. Do you ever ask yourself why files are closed for anything from 30 years to 70 years in the case of Dr. David Kelly? I recall talking to a friend about the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was a provable deception to get the US into Vietnam. My friend replied, Vietnam was a long time ago, proof that the closing of files is an extremely effective way of consigning challengeable data to forgotten history, as is the news cycle, where stories come and go and are quickly replaced by something newer and fresher. Both Sunstein and the BBC are also working with the assumption that America and Britain have open societies and a free press which is only true in relative terms. The fact that they are more open than, say, North Korea and China may well be true, But if you had earned $1,000 for a month's work but were only paid $100, would you be happy with the justification that this was still more than the majority of the world earns? What I mean is, are you happy to be shortchanged for your privacy to be invaded and your intelligence insulted just because others in the world are even bigger victims than you? We've already seen that information is subject to media filters, as explained by Noam Chomsky in his book Manufacturing Consent the vast majority of it is now concentrated into a handful of corporations that could literally be counted on the fingers of one hand last i heard it was 6 so it's uh, maybe you need a couple of fingers from the other hand depending on whether you use your thumbs yeah anyway thought about that too much career newspaper editors career academics and career politicians are not going to risk their reputations and careers and the people who turn out to be whistleblowers are often ex-government officials who are now out of their obligations and free to pursue and disseminate previously hidden truths. Considering the control of the media, it's certainly hard to imagine a primetime show, objectively promoted and reported on by the media, which looked closely at the remarkable list of curious anomalies which surround the official versions of JFK and 9-11, not to mention the category of conspiracy theories which turned out to be true, such as Operation Northwoods, the Gulf of Tonkin, COINTELPRO, the CIA's illegal overthrowing of democratically elected governments in countries such as Iran and Guatemala, and support of murderous regimes and death squads in Latin America, and the obvious, unprovoked assaults on Cambodia and Laos during the Vietnam War. In this author's fantasy world, where truth would supersede the vested interests that hamstring media organisations, the news that the Gulf of Tonkin incident alone was admitted to be fake. In brief, this incident was used as a justification for America's full-scale intervention, invasion, occupation, you pick the word, of Vietnam, discovered through declassified documents years after the event, would be all over the news and would shake the foundations of how society is viewed. Intelligent commentators would inform the public that in fact the whole war, as with most wars, was nothing to do with saving people but about power and resource grabs and huge amounts of money made from armament sales and loans to each side to fund the conflict. People would then perhaps start to question war in general, including the current endless conflict, and the whole house of quads may come down. Of course, it would never happen like that because of the format of mainstream television that Joe Rogan observed, which is to show crumbs of truth with strict time restraints among endless fluff and trivia. Mature discussion and free presentation of evidence are off the table in the world of corporate mainstream information. Abby Martin, who has won high praise in alternative media circles for her show Breaking the Set on the RT network, has remarked on the remarkable irony of her having to work for a Russian-owned TV station in order to communicate true news about her country of birth, the USA. At this point, it's worth reiterating that governments have no problem believing in conspiracy theories from each other, with both seeming to feel righteous and morally superior. Certain documentaries regarding the host country's corruption are unavailable in the host country, but freely available abroad. For example, Loose Change, an extremely popular internet film regarding anomalies in the official story of 9-11, which has been shown on mainstream television in various countries. RT has certainly proved an interesting situation where Western reporters have the freedom to talk unhindered and not subject to ad hominem attacks, and thus communicate interesting and provable alternative information that they really should be able to do in their own countries in a so-called free society. They tend to be rational people who don't follow anything like the tinfoil hat stereotype of the conspiracy theorist. Now, obviously, RT is funded by the Russian government, so they have an interest... Featuring things which criticise America Abby Martin has never denied that She doesn't have that show anymore by the way She left but um, at the time of writing She was immersed in that show Breaking the set I'd go back and when I said it's ironic That they have to go to Russia to do that Although it's not actually going to Russia But RT America she worked for It's not ironic as such It's quite logical but it, it's quite strange RT of course I'm sure Has been debunked In many ways you know, Al Jazeera is another one. It's certainly true that if you went to other countries and you saw the American or British version of that channel, there would be a lot more allowed. And what I said at the end of episode seven, G. G.E.B. Griffin's talk about the Quigley formula, if that was prime time, if that was, crucially, if that was given, if that was being talked about in the media, let's call it, everyone would be talking about it. This is the point. We all fall for this magician's trick, you know, misdirection. Talk about Meghan, talk about Piers Morgan, Talk about COVID, of course. But, you know, with COVID, for example, there's no talk about how it's going to be used, about how these COVID passports, People, conspiracy theorists have been talking about that for years. The idea of centralised control. During all the Brexit hot air and all the discussions, no one talked about central control. Anyway, coming to the end here, which is probably good because reading this again it's just winding me up. <laughs> just thinking about all this. Because I've been out of this conspiracy alternative information space for a long time and recently come back into it and it's quite invigorating always is, you know, discovering the truth of the world or making an attempt to discover it anyway but I'm finding reading this I'm getting this sort of maddening sense anyway so, returning back to the conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist labels what other terms can be used to describe the same information without the baggage attached to them? Alternative information and alternative explanation are good ones, as is Rob Ager's offering of Corruption Suspicion. Think about how logical it becomes to be suspicious of corruption based on easily available evidence. What about something that encompasses the fact that black operations by intelligence agencies, which routinely result in untold numbers of innocent deaths, are largely ignored or played down by the corporate media, and are more known to people as the titles of video games played by children and adults alike, rather than as realities? So I'm thinking of um, Tour of Duty Black Ops. Suddenly Black Ops is uh, totally innocuous. You know, it's just something that happens. There is in fact a term and a whole field of academic research related to such investigations. Peter Dale Scott, a Canadian former Berkeley professor, has spoken of the deep state, deep geopolitics and parapolitics, all of which refer to the multitude of complicated covert activities and secrecy which ultimately drive what happens on the surface. An easily understandable analogy is to think of what we hear on mainstream news as a presentation of a play or movie version of life, or indeed a reality show if you prefer. It appears real, but of course we never see any of the backstage shenanigans which contribute to the execution of what the audience says. The long-running play, Noises Off, was and is a perfect metaphorical representation of this. And I didn't explain it in the article, but yes, Noises Off is basically you see a play... So a play within a play, so to speak, in the first half. And then the second half is apparently exactly the same events, but from the perspective of backstage. So it's not a political play. It's not about that, but it's a, as I said, it's a perfect representation of everything that's happening behind the curtain. And think of all the thousands of things that happen. Uh, refer to Yes Minister once again <laughs> and Yes Prime Minister. I've been watching a few of them again recently and it just just gets better and better you know so think of um the government and the media or the whole representation of life as something that's been rehearsed you know it's not that clinical i don't think i think it's more subtle i think it's more to do with um, what's decided is acceptable and unacceptable and that doesn't often have to be spelled out you just get a sense of it you know a journalist friend did admit this to me he said you know when you enter the journalistic world it's like any world you're the new boy and you sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, or unconsciously conform to certain things, and you get an idea of the culture. Anyway, we are reaching the end here, so summary of main points. 1. The phrases conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorists provide a kind of allergic reaction in most people that hear them, and tend to make further exploration of a point difficult and unnecessary. 2. These phrases have been deliberately introduced into the general lexicon as pejorative terms, 3. Real conspiracies exist every day, and the phrases when used normatively, that means literally, can apply to people with critical thinking skills. 4. Serial conspiracy debunkers do precisely the same thing as those crazies they criticise, such as cherry-picking evidence and rigidly sticking to their dogma. 5. Alternative narratives, particularly those full of grey areas, don't sit well with the prevalent left-brain thinking of society, which is itself a product of largely left-brain schooling. 6. Extremists exist on both sides of the conspiracy-no-conspiracy spectrum, and none of them are to be blindly taken at their word. 7. Governments and media, like the majority of the public, work from the premise that conspiracy theories are a dangerous, irritant, or perhaps a hobby or fetish, which needs to be debunked. 8. Fair presentation of alternative information, with all evidence presented and more neutral terms used to describe it, might well awaken the public and shake them from their collective apathy. Conclusion We all inherit a worldview which influences our behaviour and beliefs, as well as certain core ties to nationalism, patriotism and religion. As Marshall McLuhan said, receiving language is a making practice, not a matching one. Language is processed by our beliefs and we make it what we want it to be, process it unconsciously in milliseconds and so hear what we want to hear. In the case of the phrase that we've been examining, its popular pejorative use happens to fit well as a dismissive advice for the majority of beliefs the aforementioned lack of training in critical thinking doesn't help shake these beliefs. When a phrase has a connotation such as conspiracy theorist that manages to get to the core of these beliefs, it is very effective at garnering a very specific reaction. Perhaps in this stressful and difficult world, it's just easier and less painful to fall to dismissal. On the other hand, we are all potentially philosophers who can search for or find the truth, no matter what the uncomfortable or painful effect can be. Next time you watch television and see the established view being challenged, just see how quickly the phrase conspiracy theorists used, as well as the limiting labels of left and right if all else fails. For those who do grasp what they've read here, the inevitable question comes, what can I do? Well, even if you don't have the time or inclination for a particular action, you have the power to try and make critical thought a greater part of society by doing it yourself and spreading it to others. Instead of making your discourse full of triviality, spend your time thinking and becoming a philosopher. Help arrest the dumbing down of society. We also need to be big and admit we've been duped and are capable of being influenced. Also, be brave. Dare to confront people in a friendly way. Doing something that scares you but doesn't kill you is always a good thing. Be true to yourself and say what you believe. Barry Swicker's advice if someone accuses you of being a conspiracy theorist is to stop them quickly and own the term. Tell them straight off before their use of the phrase has been allowed to enter the conversation what the term actually means. As much as we shouldn't need tactics to express what we think is truth, we shouldn't be above them. A good tactic is to say that you don't believe in conspiracy theories, but I've heard this and this and this, even said with a hint of surprise, definitely don't preach, it never works. As a kind of disclaimer, I'd like to say that some of what I presented here is by the literal definition a conspiracy theory, just as Oliver Stone's 1991 film JFK was in the director's own words, a counter-conspiracy theory to the government's. I wasn't at the JFK assassination, or at the Tonkin Gulf in 1964, or in New York on September 11th. Who am I? Just an average person who's read and heard a certain amount of information, which, like our character James at the beginning of this essay, doesn't appear to fit with what I was always told when growing up. Maybe conspiracy theories are dangerous and to be avoided, or maybe they foster a healthy scepticism. What I am absolutely sure of is that language is used by those in power as a tool of manipulation to mask extremely questionable activities, and anything that helps to alert the average person of this fact, along with the fact that we are being dumbed down and largely distracted by things which are in fact meaningless, but appeal to certain emotions, is a good thing. And I end with a paragraph. This is, again, from the context of 2014. Last year, the House of Commons in Britain, my homeland... Voted categorically against military action Following a chemical weapons attack in Syria And across the Atlantic it was clear That the American public were against such action Did the non-intervention in Syria Have anything to do with growing awareness Of the true reality of the world we live in Helped by the alternative media Of independent radio, newspapers and podcasts As a result of information Usually disregarded as conspiracy theory This is where the dilemma of What can we do could be answered Street protests have a place no doubt but perhaps it's a changing of the general discourse and increased non-participation whenever possible that can actually change things that seem far out of our reach. Whether you feel that you're interested or not in politics... I put politics in the commas there, because the actor John Cusack was asked by an interviewer, are you interested in politics? And he said, I'm not interested in rock and roll politics. You know, left and right, and this personality over that personality. Anyway... Whether you feel you're interested or not in politics, we all want a better world, and it may be slightly simpler, if not easier, than we think. And i just like to end, really, with that thought that, um, as James Corbett and I said in the last episode, and uh, I put a link to a video by Rob Ager, A Million Ways to Vote. There are many ways, every day, that you can do your little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm not against protest groups, and I think street protests, I'm not sure exactly how effective they are. And I lost heart in them, really, when I was involved in um, a protest in 2010 in London where tuition fees were being doubled. And essentially the media just were waiting until one person did a violent action and they concentrated all their attention on that. So I'm certainly not going to knock protest groups. I'm just saying that you don't have to join a group. There are small actions you can take in your own lives every day to make the world a better place. So keep that in mind that, you know, it's not easy, but it may be simpler than you think. So I hope you enjoyed that and you stuck with it. It was interesting to read that again. As I said, some of it was a little bit out of date, but I think um, general concepts hold true. So I'm going to leave you with a song that I wrote and recorded in Madrid in 2017. And it's the second theme song of this podcast. And it's the one you heard in episode seven and at the beginning of this episode. It's a song called The Fool's Guide, and I'm including it here because, unlike a lot of my music that I recorded in those years in Madrid, it actually does have activist themes or social comment themes. And the tag of it really is uh, about people believing what they read and believing what they see. And uh, it's quite a long song. It's a bit of an epic. But uh, I don't really rate myself as a lyricist generally. But I think the lyrics of this one are fairly decent, so have a listen out for them while you're listening to the song. And there's eight musicians on this entitled, So I was with Kester Jones, David Ernstberger, Mike Ursin, Julian Athon, Ernesto Pestana, James Jarman and Bruno Ragone. So this is The Fool's Guide. I hope you enjoy this episode of Life and Life Only and I'll see you soon for the next one. Goodbye.
3: Your wife And people are grunts Back to front And people are Dreams Oh so it seems And I can't take them Right now I can't can't take take them them right right now. now Can't get out Of my bed There's a thought Crime running through my head can't take these rules and people are fools who believe what they read and believe what they see believe what they see on the TV Opinions are like iPhones Everybody's got one Like broken hearts Everybody knows one and they'll use them Line them up and school them Oh, give me a gun and I'll shoot them Most people are nice Fundamentally nice Believe in left It's wrong to fly But they still too Robbers and